I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 12. This is not only the final public word of Jesus as far as teaching goes to his to the crowds in the marketplace. Uh, this is the end of chapter 12. We move further and further towards the cross. Uh, this is a familiar but I think most often misunderstood passage, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to look at it with you today. Uh, This sermon is entitled, The Wicked Grift of False Religion. The Wicked Grift of False Religion. Uh, Mark 12, verse 41 to the end of the chapter, and I'll read the first verse of chapter 13 as well. And he sat down opposite the treasury, and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. This is the very Word of the living God. Giving is something that most pastors feel uncomfortable talking about, or at least hopefully they feel somewhat uncomfortable talking about giving. Uh, Most people don't want to hear a sermon on giving, And there are some remarkable passages in Scripture, uh, in 1 Corinthians, for example, uh, that are really descriptive of what it means to sacrificially give. There's examples in the early church of giving uh, in Acts chapter 2, where the believers willingly put forward their possessions for the the use of one another. Uh, Giving in the Bible is, is described as to be Uh, from the heart, uh, not something that is forced. Uh, And it's built on an entire system in the Old Testament that is not in effect today called the tithe. It was uh, an offering similar to uh, our system of taxes uh, in that there was 10% approximately that was given to the the treasury of the temple, uh, 10% that went to uh, the the governance of Israel, and another portion uh, for the common good. So uh, all of that, there's just plenty in the Bible to reach into to justify any kind of sermon on giving, on being generous, on uh, the Old Old Testament concept of tithing. Uh, I don't prefer to use that, that word, not really a New Testament concept. Uh, but it makes people nervous because... It feels like someone's trying to reach into their pocket. Uh, it feels like some, something exploitive is happening. And, and something exploitive is happening all the time in false religion. False religions are, uh, by their 
I mean, with barely even a, a wrapping on it, they are looking for your money. I have interacted with false teachers, both uh, intentionally and unintentionally, uh, unintentionally turning on uh, a show and watching you know, a YouTube video of somebody trying to fleece the flock. Uh, intentionally, I remember uh, my roommates in college, we had this uh, kind of thing going where we were writing to a false teacher that sent us some mail. And we were just trying to, you know, exhaust resources, kind of like when you, you keep the spammer on the phone a long time. And he sent us like a prayer shawl and he sent us $5 and we were supposed to send him $5 back. And we just kept writing to him and it was, it was our thing. Uh, so the false teachers are abounding and grifters are everywhere. And so I don't really understand why this particular passage uh, is the passage that preachers use so often to illustrate sacrificial and, and generous uh, giving. Because I don't think that is the message of this passage at all. But uh, that's how it's traditionally and in the majority of interpretations understood. And so what I need to do today is, is show you that my view, which I'll call John MacArthur's view, is not crazy, uh, but it is actually exactly in line with what we need to hear at this point in the Gospel of Mark. I think it's been clear that there's been a repudiation of the current religious system because the current religious system has rejected Jesus. Therefore, the temple, the offerings, the priesthood, the Sanhedrin, the the powers that be are now being set aside. They're being canceled because the new covenant is of a different kind. It's centered around the Son of God who's going to give His life as an offering for sin. With this in mind, I want to approach this passage uh, with, with kind of three ideas in my head. One, a concern for widows, which is I want to show you is, is thoroughly biblical because we're talking about a widow in this passage. Two, uh, the fact that context is king in understanding anything in the Bible. You have to understand where it is in the Bible. And three, a phrase I've used and stole from another author uh, about the Gospel of Mark, which is that I want to see the cross at a distance. So that, that's the, the journey we're going on. It'll be a brief journey this morning. Uh, but concern with widows, context is king, the cross at a distance. I want you to see that this is a, an exhibit not of radical generosity, but a heart-wrenching story of the wicked grift of false religion. It's a warning to us all and a reminder that, our, that true religion needs to be centered on Jesus and Jesus alone. So, uh, just to give you a taste of how this passage is understood, described by commentators as, quote, a beautiful story, or, quote, a beautiful, active, and desert of official devotion. Uh, Another says, the touching story of the widow's offering has often been cited in literature, sermons, and Bible lessons as providing an exemplary model of sacrificial giving. This passage is often seen as a praise on the lips of Jesus, commending this woman's amazing, unparalleled 
generosity. My favorite commentary in the Gospel of Mark by uh, James Edwards, he says this in the final episode of Jesus' public teaching ministry, Mark sets the religious pretense of the scribes and the humble faith of a widow in acid contrast. The widow's offering, despite its ostensible insignificance, is for Mark the most fitting response to the subterfuge of the Sanhedrin, for rather than seeking Jesus' life, she gives her whole life. And so it's with a concern for widows that I want to begin to paint this picture. Is this widow an example of extravagant generosity in giving to God? Or is there something else going on here? Well, a word about widows. This story of one widow's offering provides us with uh, an insight, a clue into uh, some of the deep division that's occurring between Jesus and the temple leaders, the religious establishment. You see, widows in the Torah uh, are given the most significant status uh, of all the disenfranchised in the society alongside of of orphans. It's widows and orphans who enjoy uh, protections in uh, biblical law, who enjoy a special place in biblical priorities. It was all the way back back in Exodus 22 that God commanded Israel at Mount Sinai to not afflict any widow or orphan. God's laws, His legislation has plenty in defense of widows and orphans because of how exploitable they were in an ancient society uh, with no husband or no parents. They were prone to exposure and to total loss of everything in that ancient society. No government programs, no orphanages. Uh, the covenant God of Israel is the one who, according to Deuteronomy 10.18, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. This means that when we see a widow featured in the gospel account, we need to assume and understand that Jesus has God's view of her. She is to enjoy special privileges. Some of those privileges that you've encountered in your Bible reading would be things like in the book of Ruth, where uh, they were to not cut the corners of the fields all the way down, but to leave that for the widows to come through. Uh, Boaz gives Ruth that privilege gleaning and even offers her special protection as she gets the food she needs to survive for her and her widowed mother-in-law. And part of the system of tithing in the Old Testament was devoted in Levitical law to the provision for widows and orphans. And so to understand that here we have a widow in display in the New Testament brings or should bring all of Old Testament teaching about widows into clear focus here. So the question is how were widows treated in Jesus' day by the religious establishment? And I think the answer is here. They were giving 
all that they had to the temple system. The beautiful buildings that one of Jesus' disciples highlight as being of, of such remarkable beauty required an extraordinary amount of money to fund the construction and maintenance of the temple system. The fact that this widow was giving her final coins may tell us something about how widows were being treated in ancient Judaism. Not only that, in extra-biblical material, there's something called the Damascus document that has an important passage in it that reminds Israelites that they are to separate themselves from the sons of the pit and to keep themselves from the unclean riches of wickedness through vow or anathema and by robbing the wealth of the sanctuary and not to rob the poor of his people that widows may be their spoil and that they might murder the fatherless. References in the Old Testament to uh, those who have gone into greed and into grift and into exploitation, who are the false prophets, Isaiah 10, uh, other passages in the Minor Prophets that speak of the exploitation of widows should have been on the lips of every true teacher of the law. The Jerusalem priesthood should have been standing at that coin receptacle and stopping that poor widow from giving her last two coins and even providing coins for her because that is what the purpose of part of the offering was, was to care for women like her. The criticisms against the priests in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, or, or even before Jesus' day, uh, flipping over to Isaiah chapter 10. Woe to those who enact evil statutes, to those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights so that widows may be their spoil, that they may plunder the orphans. Now what will you do in the day of punishment and in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. In spite of all of this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. These warnings against, these criticisms against priests who should be providing for widows who instead are exploiting widows are some of the darkest eras of Israel's false worship, of her corrupted worship. And here in Mark chapter 12, we are at the point of Israel's darkest turn. She is actively rejecting her Messiah. And not only this, but Jesus has already condemned the present practices of the religious leaders repeatedly in the Gospel of Mark. Maybe his strongest condemnation, though, is recorded for us in Matthew 15, uh, verse 14. Uh, it could do the whole chapter, but he, he is eviscerating the priesthood for how they are treating uh, the poor. It says in Matthew fifteen fourteen, let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. 
Jesus has not handled the religious establishment with kid gloves. He hasn't pulled his punches. He has made it perfectly clear that they have followed the traditions of men rather than the commandments of God. The parable that Jesus puts forth in Luke 18 about a dishonest judge may have in it some of that indifference to widows that Jesus seems to be underlining because the woman who comes to the judge seeking mercy is said to be a widow, someone who should have received uh, just rendering from the judges of the day, but who is seeking justice that's eluded her. Even in Extra-biblical writings like Josephus, some of the ruling priests, and, and Josephus was a very loyal Jew, but he talks about some of the ruling priests sending thugs to rob the lower-ranking priests for their fair share of the tithes and to beat those who resist. Uh, these kind of stories not only are in Israel's ancient prophetic past in the Old Testament, but are all over uh, the intertestamental period, over Jesus' uh, times and after Jesus' times, of those kind of treacherous members of the ruling party who would tax the people in a way that was above and beyond anything reasonable. Matthew, the disciples' own testimony as a tax collector, was one that would have been like Zacchaeus, one who exploited the poor and took from them instead of seeking to serve and to help them. So here in this passage, you do not have Jesus in opposition to this widow, but you have Jesus taking up concern for this widow as she is the marginalized, as she is the one who is a victim of this system that is allowing her to give her last penny to build this extravagant temple, the same temple which will not accept her Messiah and that Jesus has strongly and continually condemned. The complaint that Jesus is leveling against the system all throughout the surrounding passage is still in effect. The temple establishment, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, all of them are missing what should be the most important reality in their religion, which is the coming of Jesus and His atoning death. That's why context is king. So there's a little bit about widows. You could do a whole study of all that the Bible says about concern for widows. But context is king. And what is the context of our passage? We'll just consider immediately before our passage, which is in the book of Mark. Mark 12, right? Yeah. So right before our passage, uh, what did we see Jesus doing and, and saying how is Jesus presenting, uh, or how is Mark presenting this story in light of the stories that have gone before? We'll look at the very immediate context. Mark 12, verse 38. There's a caution here. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplace. They love to be called rabbi, right? They love the dignity and the dress and the, the trappings of it. Jesus says in verse 39, and chief seats in the synagogues and 
places of honor at banquets. And would you just be mindful that long robes and synagogues and banquets take money. And they love these things. And Jesus' direct indictment of them in verse 40 is they devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Greater condemnation. Not lesser condemnation. And Jesus has spoken these words of of condemnation in Matthew 23, hasn't He? When He said to the scribes and the Pharisees in the strongest possible language after that same kind of Phariseeism being exposed, that they do things for show, they put burdens on the people's shoulders, they love places of honor, verse 6 of Matthew 23. They love to be called rabbi. And so Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 23, 13, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses and for pretense will make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple that is nothing, whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering in it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar? Altar that sanctifies the offering. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything in it. And he goes on. There's still like 15 more verses of that. So Jesus wasn't looking on this temple system like his soft headed disciple and saying, Wow, these buildings are pretty. So pretty. Jesus' righteous indignation is the context of the story of the widow. The devouring of widows' houses is the condemnation. The widow's might is exhibit A. That's why when His disciple says, context is king, teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, Jesus takes this occasion to say, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. The temple is being destroyed because the temple has been exploited and it has lost its place in the city and the nation because she has rejected and is rejecting her Messiah. Jesus is saying in verse 41 to 44, look at this system. This is not an illustration of generous giving. This is not a comment on surrender or self-denial. It's not a 
heroic statement of, of love, of the kingdom, of belief. To, to Jesus never says, do like she does, uh, because she's having her pockets emptied. He's, in fact, already talked about giving in this passage. Don't let your, in this, this gospel, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Don't have shows of ostentatiousness in your giving because this story of this poor widow who in the Greek gives her very life. That's the last words of the passage. She gives all her life. This is all she has left. Two tiny coins. She's impoverished. She's out. She will go home and die. This passage is not about giving. This passage is about taking. Taking away. And that's what false religion does. In its greed And in its lack of concern for the things of God, it steals from those who are most vulnerable. Jesus has already condemned the idea of the the Pharisees. Remember the passage on Corbin? I can't provide for my parents, they said, because I took a spiritual vow. I've declared all my goods Corbin. Well, Jesus has already shown them that human need takes precedent. And even just a basic understanding of who God is, He doesn't need your money. You get that, right? Max 17, He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. But He gives to us life and breath and everything. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God owns you, so He obviously already owns everything that's in your pockets. You think God, the perfectly sufficient one, needs $20 from you, college student? That should transform the way you think about your $20, though, doesn't it? Or 40, you might have 40. But the idea that God is needy and would ever be exploitive towards the poor and the vulnerable is a dreadful concept that's alien to the context of all of Jesus' teaching. And that's why Jesus doesn't invite us to imitate this woman. In fact, if you just logically think about this, what Jesus is saying, it's a very self-evident statement. She put in more than rich people who put in some because she gave all, right? I mean, is that the standard for giving? Like you should just empty it completely. We already learned in Mark chapter 10 when the rich young ruler was confronted with with his sin, he needed to sell all his possessions. But that wasn't the definition of discipleship. The definition of discipleship was to put off the obstacle, which for the rich young ruler was all his stuff. But what he was unwilling to do was to follow the Lord completely. This is not a passage like that. This woman is not call, is not being given as an example of one who truly loves God and gives to God. And I'm sure that her giving could have been from a genuine heart. It was obviously from a place of sacrifice, but her giving was the product of a system that was taking, devouring houses of widows, not leaving one stone upon another. Jesus was going to tear it all down. 
This is the vile robbery of false religion. All that she had her whole life is poured out in this terrible system that takes and takes and takes. But there's more going on here than just that. This whole narrative, this whole gospel is pointed towards that cross on the horizon. That cross at the distance where, like this widow, Jesus would lay down His whole life. You see, the Christian religion is never one that is based on what you can accomplish, what you can give, and what you can sacrifice. The Christian religion, by definition of the cross work of Jesus, is based on what He has given and what He has sacrificed and that He lays down His whole life. The cross at a distance shows us that Jesus gives His life not in the temple not on the altar, not with priests and trappings and systems, but accursed on that hill outside of the city because that temple was no longer sacrosanct. It was no longer the place of blessing. It was a place of cursing. And Jesus would go outside of the city and give his whole life, laying it down that we might have life and find life in him. Have you ever heard the name Charles Chinque? If you're into American history and read a a Lincoln biography, you've probably run into him. Lincoln hired him as his attorney. I'm sorry, he hired Lincoln as his attorney. Uh, Charles Kinquay was a priest, a Roman Catholic priest who immigrated from Canada. And uh, so there's a lot of, of Lincoln conspiracy theories with this guy. If you Google him up, it's weird. Do it later. Not now. Not pertinent. Um, he, he believed the Roman Catholic Church was behind Lincoln's assassination, big wild conspiracy theories. Before Infowars, uh, there was Canadian Roman Catholic priests. So anyway, he wrote a book after he left Catholicism uh, called 50 Years in the Church of Rome. And in it, he describes one of his most memorable and earliest trials in life. He was a young teenager, and his father had just died. And they had a mass for his father and his poor mother, he describes her going through these heart-rending times, hearing her sobs in the long hours of the day, the longer hours of the night. Many times, he says, I saw her fall upon her knees to implore God to be merciful to her and her three unhappy orphans. I could do nothing then to comfort her, but love her, pray, and weep with her. Only a few days had elapsed after the burial of my father when I saw Mr. Cortiot, the parish priest, coming to our house He had earlier in another story he tells uh, chastised this family for allowing their children to read the Bible. He had a reputation of being rich and we were poor and unhappy since my father's death. My first thought was that he'd come to comfort and help us. I could see my mother had the same hopes. She welcomed him as an angel from heaven. The last gleam of hope is so sweet to one who is unhappy. From his very first words, however, I could see that our hopes were not to be realized. He tried to be sympathetic and even said something about the confidence that we should have in God, especially in times of trial, but his words were cold and dry. Turning to me, he said, Do you continue to read the Bible, my little boy? Yes, sir, answered I, with a voice trembling with anxiety, for I feared that he would make another effort to take away that treasure, and I had no longer a father to defend it. And then addressing my mother, he said, Madam, I told you it was not right for your child to read that book. 
My mother cast down her eyes and answered only by tears which ran down her cheeks. That question was followed by a long silence and the priest then continued, Madam, there is something due for the prayers which have been sung and the services which you requested to be offered for the repose of your husband's soul. I will be very much obliged to you if you pay me that little debt. Mr. Corte answered my mother, my husband left me nothing but debts. I have only the work of my own hands to procure a living for my three children, the eldest of whom is before you. For these little orphans' sake, if not for mine, do not take from us the little that is left. But madam, he said, you do not reflect. Your husband died suddenly and without any preparation. He is therefore in the flames of purgatory. If you want him to be delivered, you must necessarily unite your personal sacrifices to the prayers of the church and the masses which we offer. As I said, my husband has left me absolutely without means. It's impossible for me to give you any money, replied my mother. But madam, your husband was for a long time the only notary of Malba Bay. He must have had made much money. I can scarcely think that he has left you without any means to help him now that his desolations and sufferings are far greater than yours. My husband did indeed coin much money, but he spent still more. Thanks to God, we have not been in want while he lived, but lately he got his house built and what is still doing it makes me fear that I will lose it. He also bought a piece of land not long ago, only half of which is paid, and I will therefore probably not be able to keep it. I hope, sir, with my poor orphans, that you would not deprive us to take away from us our last piece of bread. But, madam, the masses offered for the rest of your husband's soul must be paid for, answered the priest. My mother covered her face with a handkerchief and wept. And as for me, I did not mingle my tears with hers this time. My feelings were not of those of grief, but of anger and unspeakable horror. My eyes were fixed on the face of that man who tortured my mother's heart. I looked with tearless eyes upon the man who added to my mother's anguish and made her weep more bitterly than ever. My hands were clenched as if ready to strike. All my muscles trembled. My teeth chattered as from intense cold. My greatest sorrow was my weakness in the presence of that big man and not being able to send him away from our house and driving him far away from my mother. I felt inclined to say to him, are you not ashamed, you who are so rich, to come to take away the last piece of bread from our mouths? But my physical and moral strength were not sufficient to accomplish the task before me. I was filled with regret and disappointment. And after a long silence, my mother raised her eyes, reddened with tears, towards the priest and said, Sir, you see that cow in the meadow not far from our house? Her milk and the butter made from it form the principal part of my children's food. I hope you will not take her away from us if, however, such a sacrifice must be made to deliver my poor husband's soul from purgatory. Take her as payment of the masses to be offered to extinguish those devouring flames. The priest instantly rose, saying, Very well, madam, and went out. He took their cow. This is a passage that ever since I heard J. Mac preach it, I don't know, a dozen years ago, has always been burned in my conscience about the power and exploitation of false religion. False religion is religion that has no concern for the weak 
and no concern for Jesus. And when it, in all its trappings, demands of the poor what it should be providing for them, it has lost sight of what true religion is all about. Because true religion is about Jesus and what He accomplishes. And from it will flow true and lasting, breathtaking even generosity. Inexplicable to those who don't know Jesus. God's people give so faithfully. And God's servants receive it so humbly so that they might share it with those who need it the most. Father, thank You for Your truth and this sober reminder of the power and grift and danger of a religion that devours the houses of widows. Help us to never lose sight of Jesus. We ask this in His name. Amen.